basically, it's here's what I did when I was a teenager. Don't, don't do that. Because when I did it, it was terrible and very dangerous, mainly. But do you think that's just because we all look at what we did when we were teenagers and think it's much worse than what teenagers do now? Or was it genuinely worse? I think it's because you and I look at what we did as teenagers. <laughs> and we were a particularly scurrilous end of the market, weren't we? I think you were as well, probably. Yeah, you but I don't be. need to tell stories here, but you no. do. No, well, I'm... <laughs> so, I'm what did you do though. as a teenager? Well, I... That was scurrilous. Kind of from the age of about 14, I just behaved very badly. Um, I wasn't very happy because uh, I was moved to school I didn't want to go to. So I immediately zeroed in on the worst people at school. I went to pubs. I used to get out of my bedroom window at night when my parents had gone to sleep and go out clubbing. And then I would get back in through the garage window, which I would leave open and occasionally be quite drunk and fall on my dad's car and dent it. But <laughs> for some reason, he didn't notice. So that's very good. Um, I went out. To, just, I went, I did drugs. I, well, everything, really. Yeah. Did your parents notice? Well, they, they did sort of notice, but they were like those kind of comedy parents that think they were just so worried about things which weren't really worth worrying about. As soon as they got a sniff of me doing anything bad, they would exaggerate it beyond belief and then get extremely worried about it. So it's like those parents that they hear that you've smoked a joint and they think within about an hour and a half you're going to be a heroin addict. Mm -hmm. And um, good evening. <laughs> well, sneaked. Sorry, and I mentioned you. Sorry. Um, yeah, so it was, that, it was that sort of thing, really. And, um, you know, the problem I always had was I was a very bad liar and um, also got extremely bad alibis as well. And I once told my parents I was doing homework with someone, uh, forgot to tell her, but she knew where I was going. So she rang up uh, to say, can I have a quick word with Jo? And they said, well, she's out. And she went, oh, yeah, that's right. She's she gone went... to see an ex-film with seven blokes. <laughs> but that was true. You did go and see an ex-film with seven blokes. I did, and we smoked a lot of dope, and we got very drunk. My daughter's here tonight. I hope you're listening to all this, Major. <laughs> um, but you went to see The Last Tango in Paris with yeah. seven blokes. Is that the film you're thinking about? Yes. Why did you go? Why did I go? Well, because it seemed to be the most rancid, appalling ex-film that was on in Hastings did at the time. Did you find it embarrassing watching it with seven blokes? No, I remember so, finding I was so it drunk, quite... I don't remember anything about it. But uh, no, I didn't find it embarrassing at all. Did you? Yeah. Because of the uh, Marlon yeah. Brando butter scene. The butter scene, yeah, yeah I did. Has, any, has everyone seen Last Tango in Paris? Yeah. Well, there's did a... anyone else find it embarrassing? Yeah. Thank you. One person. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, it just shows that I've got nicer sensibilities than you. But what were your... Because um, you, you moved out of home at 16, which is pretty drastic. I mean, even then, that was pretty young. Yeah. What, was, what made you want to leave? What was your dad like, your mum like? Well, I, I didn't particularly want to leave. The, the atmosphere in our house was terrible. My mum uh, was out at work all the time. My dad suffered from quite severe depression, which, I mean, at that point, he would have been in his 30s, and that wasn't treated till he was in his 50s. So living with him was like just walking on eggshells all the time. He had a terrible temper. Uh, he would throw things. He was quite violent. Do you know what was the matter? Did I know at the time? Yeah. No, I just thought he was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
was he horrible to you yeah. and your brothers? Yeah. Yeah. So what happened when you were 16? Well, when I was, well, the lead up to it was that I, was that I started going out with this very unsavoury character um, who was on the Hastings scene. He was a, a heroin addict, a drug dealer. Um, he was very, very posh. And my dad was very, very working class. And he so was... So was the kind of guy who wore pink trousers? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I don't think he ever wore pink ones. Red ones, certainly. Right. And what attracted me about him was he was in a band and they were called Dennis Dog Basket and the Pedigree Chums. And, um, Actually, that's kind of brilliant. <laughs> well, but the thing was, they did one gig, he fell off the stage because he was pissed and broke his leg. And that was their final performance. So there was something kind of really wonderful about them, really. So you went off with Dennis and the Dog Basket? I did, yeah. And where did that take you? Well, it took... I moved into a bedsit um, and... Uh, rather ironically, at that point, and totally coincidentally, he got a job up in London, so he used to come home at the weekends. I went back to school one day a week uh, to do my A-levels, which the school let me do. And the rest of the time I worked in the civil service, um, in the DOE, paying um, 200 cleaners their wages. That was my job uh, every week, so that wasn't a very exciting job. So what, did your, what did your parents think? I think my parents were just in such a bad way because they were splitting up and my, my, you know, my dad was in a bad way and just kind of, they were just so desperate to get me out of their hair, really, I think, probably. Did you feel incredibly rejected? No, I was really pleased. <laughs> I, I actually, I really wanted to leave home because it was so awful there. So can you imagine 16 years old, terrible at home, then suddenly there you are, living in a bedsit that's like something out of a, you know, a 1970s drama. Because it really was. I mean, the top floor, there were six Korean chefs in one room. <laughs> the next floor down was a Rastafarian called Eric, and they weren't very well known in Hastings in the 70s. <laughs> then there was me. Then there was a, a single mum with a black baby below me, and that was appalling uh, in Hastings in the 70s. And then below her was her mum, who um, sold cannabis. So, um, it was kind of oh, great, it was, really. It was great. Yeah. It was absolutely great. And where did you go from there? Well, where I went from there was he and I had been together, I don't know, um, four or five months, and I, I went to meet him in the pub and found him snogging someone else in the corner, uh, which obviously at that point was sort of slightly perplexed because I'd given up everything for him. So I pretended that everything was all right. And then when he went to work on the Monday, I hired a van and I left Hastings. And I just really wish I'd been able to see him come back to our flat, open the door and just find a totally empty space. Where did you and the van go? We went to Tunbridge Wells. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because I went to school there, and yeah. I had a lot of friends there. So what happened to the van full of furniture and clothes and what have you? Well, it went into my bedsit in Tunbridge Wells. Okay. Which I then burnt down, sadly. Not deliberately. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I was at a party. I went home. In those days, um, I didn't have um, uh, my, sort of that much money, and I'd run out of money for the electricity meter, so I had a candle light by my bed. Mm. Um, dropped off to sleep, woke up, the bed was on fire. 
Oh, it was just like Miss Havisham. It was marvellous. <laughs> and um, thought, you know what it's like when you're drunk? You, you kind yeah. of don't panic, do you? Do no, you, you don't. It's true. Oh, fuck it. Sort it out in the go morning. Go back to sleep. And, yeah. um, <laughs> well, actually, I really did start to go back to sleep. And then, yeah, and then I thought it was quite hot in here. So <laughs> I pulled it up, pulled the bed up, and the whole of the underneath was red hot. And the whole thing just exploded in front of me. So I went to neck knocked on the, my neighbour, who's a very grumpy boat next door, I went, I've got a small fire in my, <laughs> in my room. And he opened the door and it was like the towering inferno, you know, and so that all, I lost everything really that I'd... So, so this is a kind of an advice book, so if, if that was presented... That's present... quite good advice, isn't okay. it? Don't get drunk and light a candle, that's very good advice. Well, yep. Don't go out with a heroin addict, that's pretty good advice. <laughs> It's quite good advice. It's a bit broad, obviously, but, you know. <laughs> what would you have done if you thought your daughter had done all that? What would I have done? Well, I... I mean, wouldn't you be panicking? I would be, but, what, but, but I think that the way that I behaved was as a direct uh, result of the way my parents treated me. They're, they were extremely rigid. Their default position was no to everything. Can I go to a party? No. Can I have a friend home to stay overnight? No. Do you know what I mean? And my dad was, you know, you know that sort of dad that would say, um, if, I'll pick you up at someone's house if I'd gone over to do my homework. But where everyone else would get picked up at half ten, I would be picked up at eight. Yeah. You know, it was humiliating. Um, and so that's, that's what it was like, really. I mean, my dad, you know, um, he... When I actually got caught coming out of uh, Last Tango in Paris, they took me home because they were waiting outside in the car they'd, because I'd been grassed up and um, took me home and burnt all my clothes in the garden in a big bonfire. What? Yeah. Like Jeanette Winterson's adopted mother burning her books? Yes. What was the reason for burning your clothes? Did it mean that you'd have to stay in your bedroom all the time well, in it, the nighty? They didn't like the way I dress, and, and I smelt of patchouli, and they didn't like that either. Did so. they buy you some new clothes? Yeah, my mum bought me some lovely pinny dresses from M&S. <laughs> so I couldn't go out anyway, because they looked awful. <laughs> God, they were like, yeah, that is... Hmm. So, is that is some of this why you then became a psychiatric nurse? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think the reason I became a psychiatric nurse, my mum was a psychiatric social worker yeah. at the time. And um, if she... you're a psychiatric social worker, it means you don't actually work in a hospital, you just go and see people in their homes or what? Well, actually, there were um, social work departments based in, in hospitals, yeah. And um, a social worker was always a very integral part, and still is to, uh, to a large extent, of deciding whether people should come into hospital against their will. Mm -hmm. So you, you needed a social worker to sign one half of the right. section papers. So um, my mum specialised in, in mental health and I just kind of got used to her doing it. And so it wasn't something I was scared of. Cause no, I, don't I can know... see that. But, but sticking with your mum for a minute, given that she specialised in mental health, how did she deal with your dad? Well, what an interesting question because my dad refused to get any help because he didn't think there was a problem. Well, he knew there was really, but I think he was scared. He was scared of the stigma at work, all that sort of thing. So they, they just kind of 
soldiered on and he kept it under wraps until it got so bad that he had to see someone, really. Did they help him in the end? They did. Uh, in fact, they, they put him on uh, antidepressants and it just completely transformed him in every way. And, and it made a huge difference to his life. I'm not saying that works for everyone, but actually, you know, when it does work, it's stunning. Was it a, did it mean you and he were able to have a relationship? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we did get on pretty Good. well after that, yeah. So going back to you becoming a psychiatric nurse, what, why? Well, I think lots of reasons. First of all, I, I wanted to go to university, but I didn't want to do a totally academic course because I'd been working for three or four years already mm -hmm. and I didn't think I could cope. So there was a course which just fitted really well, which was a four-year degree course with a psychiatric nurse training um, and a social sciences degree. And that just fitted the bill for me, really, because it meant that I worked six months of every year. What? But why a psychiatric nurse? I mean, that's incredibly tough. You don't like You're... blood. No blood. <laughs> well, I mean, they sometimes cut their wrists, don't they? But yeah, but cutting your wrist isn't quite as bad, is it, as having to sort of cut someone's eye open or whatever it is? Or No, it's not, Rosie, I'm telling you. Okay. It really right. isn't. <laughs> and also, I was kind of fairly hopeless. At, so I had a blood phobia, and I was kind of fairly hopeless at doing physical things, even when I was a psychiatric nurse. Uh, I mean, for example, is it, do everyone know what a lumbar puncture is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's when they stick a massive great needle in the base of your spine to draw off spinal fluid. Well, I had to attend at one when I was a student nurse. And what, what they do, how they train doctors, is they just let them loose on unsuspecting patients to basically torture them. Uh, and so this doctor, who he was a junior doctor, he was doing the lumbar puncture. He'd never done one before. He'd just God. been taught it, right? So this poor woman was curled up in the fetal position. He comes along, you know, like Dr. Frankenstein with his massive great needle. I'm not joking, they're yeah. massive and they're really thick. Um, doesn't get on very well. It's boiling hot, it's August. The, the hospital is boiling. We're in a really tiny hot room. He's had eight goes at it, right? And honestly, this poor woman, I just felt so sorry for her. But as, when, as you're a nurse, you can't go, could you stop now, please, doctor, or I'll call the police. You know, it was, it was just a really, really difficult situation. So he said to me, I'm just going to have one more go. I said, oh, shit, are you OK? Um, so, he did, uh, so he did. He had another go. And it was so, he was bending down doing it, and it was so hot that I fainted on top of him. And I knocked the needle out of his hand and he fell over and the patient sat up on the bed and went oh thank you nurse and I, was, <laughs> I was kind of quite proud of that really <laughs> you ever put that in a comedy script i have done yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> so did you use the the work as a psychiatric nurse as the basis for the series for getting on in any way. I know that was older people, but did it, it kind yeah. of inform it? Yes, we, we did, I did use that because I had worked on a, on a ward for the elderly for six months. So I had a pretty good of idea of how grim it was, you know. So when you, were, when you were a nurse, did you see many cases? I know we were talking about this earlier of say anorexia or... Yeah, you, I worked on the anorexic unit 
But uh, were there as many cases then as there, there then became? I mean, it seems to me I didn't know anyone at school, that, let alone anyone who self-harmed, that they're kind of fashions in how you're mentally ill and that well, they're I, catching. I, or is yeah. That, I'm, I'm not sure it's kind of fashion, but I, I think what's happened these days is people are so much more open um, about any mental health problems or issues they might have that they're not embarrassed about talking about it or about seeking help for it. Um, and it obviously, um, I mean, I, I worked on the anorexic unit and um, I think what happened in those days was that parents kind of thought, oh, they've lost a bit of weight. But then when they were these poor girls were kind of skin and bone. At that point, they would do something and it would be a very dangerous point, you know, where they were in danger of losing their lives. So they would bring them in um, as inpatients and they would be treated. But um, I don't particularly think the proportions have gone up. No, not at all. What really. about self-harm? Well, I think self-harming um, has probably gone up quite a bit. But I, I think the issue with that is that there that there are websites and there's kind of a sort of strange self-harming community of people that all talk to each other. And so, in a way, that's sort of normalised it compared mm -hmm. to how it used to be. And what was your feeling about being a woman at that point, when you were like 20, 21? When did you first think, I'm a feminist or I'm a women's liver, which is what we used to call ourselves? Yes. I can't remember when the word feminism actually arrived, but we were women's libbers. Yes. Um, I don't think I ever thought of myself as a women's libber. I mean, actually, I do remember that... <laughs> well, it um, sounds ghastly in your tone. <laughs> well, no, not really. I mean, there's a lot of kind of young women that won't call themselves feminists, or certainly wouldn't, mm. in the 1990s, um, you know, because they were embarrassed and they thought their boyfriends wouldn't like them. Because... I know, because feminists are kind of shaven-headed monsters who wear dungarees and cut people's bollocks off on the tube, you know. <laughs> uh, but but uh, so, what they did, that awful thing in the 90s led by the Spice Girls, which was girl power, which I thought the irony of having a movement which gives women more power and then calling them girls, which is so completely mm. ridiculous, really. Um, so every generation's had its problem with, with saying what it is, if you like. And I suppose, really, the first thing I became aware was, was that protest at the Miss World contest when uh, Bob Hope was mm -hmm. comparing and they, all these women burst in and threw flour over everyone. I just thought, what a brilliant thing to do. And now they're using it on Bake Off. Oh, how the world's changed. <laughs> but when you saw it, did you think, that's me? in the sense, this is about me and my life, or did it seem distant? No, I thought it was about me and my life, really. Yeah, absolutely, I did. I mean, I would say that my mum was a kind of very early feminist before they were even called women's libbers, really. Is that because she worked or because of something else as well? No, it's because she was like bolshy as anything, really. <laughs> and, and she always felt that... I, as a woman, she deserved parity with men, even though in those days, quite a lot of women just accepted the fact that, that they were lesser beings. Mm. Well, not that they were lesser beings, but that they were looked upon as lesser beings, and they would, you know, go along with that. And what do you think has kind of happened to feminism? I mean, now that we have a situation where... I mean, I know, because I read you saying about it, about how 
people have now really dissed Jermaine and you said it, it's a kind of disrespectful thing that's gone on around her. Yeah, well, I, I am a huge admirer of Jermaine Greer's because I think she kind of, in many ways, she kicked off a very different era of feminism and she wrote what, for many women, was mm. very shocking stuff that they found um, difficult to read and she just overturns the whole sensibility that went before her. So I admire her for that and I don't think, just because occasionally she's... Um, badly behaved and she she doesn't temper the, the words that she uses um, I, I don't think we should just kind of pretend she didn't exist you know which I mean we all know that um, what kind of we get older and the generation younger than us reinvents um, the wheel think that we're complete wankers don't they <laughs> I mean I mean my, my daughters say hilarious things to me I mean my youngest said to me Recently, I said to her, why don't you just send someone an email? And she went, no. And I went, why not? She went, because I'm not 100 years old. And I said, <laughs> you know, and that kind of happens to all of us. And we, you know, and I, I don't expect sort of younger feminists to respect me at all. I couldn't care less whether they do or not. But I think that our icons of feminism, like Jermaine Greer, who should be accorded some respect, even though maybe they're not quite what people would want them to be these days. But the stuff that they've done in the past was so kind of volcanically impressive that we've got to yeah. remember that, really. So, the famous... Thank you. I'm glad everyone agrees with that. Your fa the famous um, incident on Have I Got News For You, which is still kind of gobsmacking for me, that Ian comes up with the line of, how did he actually say it? This is not exactly... Crimes High against level, humanity. High-level crime. crimes. And yeah. that you then hit back straight away. Were you surprised by how quickly the audience jumped in and supported you? I was, really. And, and, and I, I, I think what it was, was it was a message to those guys on the panel that actually women these days mm. do actually really care about where things are with their perspective, their careers, their, the, the amount of respect they feel they should be accorded. And I, I just thought it was absolutely brilliant that they just immediately just, you know, went mad, kind of clapping and cheering. It was, it was great. Do you think Ian understood? I do think he understood, but I don't think what he understood was the strength of feeling. Yeah. I thought he felt he was just making a throwaway remark and no one would really notice. Um, but it just goes to show that actually women do notice that sort of thing. And women know, because most of us have experienced it in one way or another, exactly um, what he was talking about and how completely wrong he was about it. And what's your view of the Me Too movement? Well, my view of the Me Too movement, and I know people slag it off because they think it's very um, frivolous in some ways, that... How hard is it to wear a black dress to a, you know, uh, to a film premiere? But actually, I suppose for some of those women who, who, you know, have a very high profile, it is actually in its way making a stand against an industry which has sort of manipulated and abused women for years. And, and so it's kind of, 
it's probably difficult for some of them to step out of their comfort zone of always being seen as a kind of attractive mm -hmm. object at film premieres and it's all about what they've got on. Um, and, and even if, you know, you, you think that it's trivial, it's not because mm. it's a collective statement by a group of women who don't actually normally have a public voice and I think that that's great. How hard have you had to fight against being a female in the world you're in? Well, I would say um, my big fight as a comedian's been all about being as funny as men because, you know, the whole attitude towards female comics has always been they're not as funny as men are. Um, and, and even other women think that, and I've heard them saying that in comedy clubs. So my, my thing with comedy always was, I'll let my comedy speak for me, mm -hmm. and I'll be just as, you know, just as impressive comically as the men, and, and that's the best way to do it. There's no point me going, could you all sit down at the comedy store and lecturing them on feminism? But if I go on and I storm it, like, like a lot of guys do, that does the job for me, really. Is it important as a comedian that you had a quite a rubbish childhood? <laughs> <coughs> what a question, Well, it is, you have said that, and I very... Uh, and in fact, lots of comedians will also say that. What is it that drives the kind of comedy that makes one laugh so much? Well, I suppose it's... A lot of comedy feels like an outsider looking in mm -hmm. and kind of analysing the lives that we all have and being more aware of what those lives are like. Um, and I, I suppose I did always feel like an outsider, really. I didn't like things that other girls liked when I was a kid, you know. And um, a lot of my friends' mums were kind of very different from my mum. You know, because my, like, my, I would go to my friends' mums and they would be reading Women's Weekly and have, have some knitting on the go and maybe, you know, um, talk about a recipe. Whereas if you were at home at our place, we would be arguing about if you, if you went back to World War II and you had a gun, would you kill Hitler? You know, and <laughs> my friends would say to me, is your mum completely mad? And I never thought she was. I always thought she was great. So... In that way, I was kind of just different from other girls, I suppose. And have you always dressed quite, I mean, like your boots, which I watched you doing something about your boots and saying that they're, you always wear those boots and you get them resold and they've yes. got uh, metal tips. Yeah. What is it about the boots? Well, I think, I don't know, yeah, I think they look scary. No, um, I agree. I, I think I'm they're really stage, scary. Especially if I've trod on a bit of tape. Um, when I'm on, um, God, when I'm on stage, they are at eye level with people sitting in a theatre. So, you know, people can see them close up and I hopefully give them a bit of a fright and they think, oh, we won't mess with But, her. I mean, is that something that's like uh, <laughs> being masculine? Or is it... No, I, d I don't think it's um, to do with being masculine at all because I, I, because I think you are, not, you are not feminine and you are not masculine. You're kind of what you are, you know. And I like things like flowers and <laughs> puppies. But, you know, um, 
<laughs> I also like shouting at people <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, doing kind of male things as well. What actually pisses me off so much is the way that our lives are kind of over oversimplified in a kind of tabloid-esque sort of way, which is you're, you've got three adjectives attached to you, and that's what you carry through um, your career. You know, with me in the tabloids, it was always fat man hating lesbian, right? Until you got married. Uh, yeah, and then I was just fat. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, like, that's the weird thing. Now, when I got married, a lot of people said, I was still man-hating, and I would always get asked, do you hate men? And i go, no, just my husband. Uh, not all of them. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of a madness, really. And I think the problem with, with living a tabloidy life is that there's no opportunity for subtlety whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that there should be. And I think, actually, if you watch a lot of online stuff, like, we watch the Kardashians at home, and I kind of find that very interesting, that sort of all the details kind of been washed out of their lives. And I mean, I know that's kind of inevitable in some ways, because they are basically just advertising products, aren't they? That's yeah. kind of what they're there for. But I find that so depressing, really. Yeah, they are quite depressing. Overall. No, I know. I want kind of. I'd like Kim Kardashian to go. Let's piss and all ride a donkey into the sea, you know, or something kind of, you know, really. Yeah, just really like different. A character, absolutely. <laughs> Let's tell Kanye to shut the fuck up. Um, you write quite a lot about, um, you know, body image and and being yourself. I mean, yeah. Body, as you say, you have been. Fat shamed, I suppose, by the tabloids. Does it ever hurt? Well, first of all, it wasn't called fat shamed then, which was. is, which uh, to me, it feels like a different era calling it that, really. Uh, okay, was, go back to it where hurtful? it began then. Was it hurtful? Well, really interestingly, it actually it began in the sun with a, a journalist called Gary Bushell. Oh, God. Yeah, we all fondly remember him. He's still around, isn't he? Yeah, but his career's been crap, thanks to me, I hope. Oh, good, I'm sure go it on. hasn't, but... What, what year were we in? What did well, the horrible Mr. Well, I was roughly Bush... kind of 1989, something like that. What did he do? Well, what happened was, first of all, I went on telly and I, and I did a set, and he reviewed me and said I was brilliant. And then the next time I was on telly, I was on, I think, on the Wogan show, and I, I did a few jokes about Margaret Thatcher. And then once he had those, he completely turned on me. Yeah. And um, just started making... I mean, he used to make the most appalling remarks about women. I mean, for once, this actually, this remark he made about an actress, it wasn't actually about me. And I was just appalled when I read it. He basically said that this actress was so ugly, she should be sniffing parcels at Heathrow Airport. Someone's laughing at that, glad to hear that. But, you know, I just think to treat women like that is just, you know, I'm kind of appalled by it. And what was so hilarious about it was, <clears throat> I always used to think, Gary Bushell wasn't exactly an oil painting himself. No. You know? And how? No, absolutely. Unless, of course, there is an oil painting called... Um, <laughs> yeah. But so did Bulldog you... licking piss off a toilet seat. But anyway. <laughs> did you get back at him? Did I get back at him? Um, 
Well, I used to I used to do jokes about him. Yes, but, but I mean, other than that, no, I didn't go to his house and have a heated debate. Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> but going back to the original question, was it hurtful? Was it hurtful? Well, of course it yeah. was. I mean, un unless you're you haven't got anything inside your head at all, it is hurtful. But I think, <clears throat> I mean, have you ever been fat? Well, I think I'm quite. Oh, you're not yes. fat now. Shut up. Do okay. you honestly think you are? <laughs> We've, no, we have God been snacking say. outside. What? I was just saying that we've been snacking quite heavily outside. Yeah, well, snacking heavily for me and for you is a totally <laughs> different um, experience, I think. But, you know, I don't think you ever genuinely have been, Rosie, and you're not now. <clears throat> uh, but if you are fat, um, it's part of your daily landscape because, uh, you know, with me, people would shout abuse at me out of cars, I've had stuff thrown at me, you know, this is all before I did stand-up. Um, and you go on stage, it's the first thing, obviously, because, because comedy audiences aren't very imaginative, so they pick on the first thing they notice about you, whether you're bald, whether you've got glasses, mm -hmm. whether you've got big nose, whatever it is, you know. So, for me, it always used to be you're fat, A, like I hadn't noticed before. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. I'll but pop to Weight Watchers then. Um, so there was that. But also there was this thing that they were like so imaginative because they didn't, they weren't very creative. They just went, you're fat. Like you kind of never heard it before. And as a psychiatric nurse and as the nurse in charge of the department I worked in who always got wheeled out, to tell people they had to leave, they couldn't be admitted, they couldn't have any methadone, they weren't going to get medication. I, I got so much more creative abuse in those days. <laughs> and I kind of sort of missed it when I left nursing, really. <laughs> but do you, I mean, I know you, you're on the extra slice, which you get all the failed creations from people in the front row. But... Does it not strike you as quite weird that we have a sort of health obsession and yet Bake Off's one of the most popular programmes? So on the one level we're saying be the best cake maker that you can and on the next level we're saying something quite different. Well, yes, along with a lot of other things. I mean, it amazes me that we tell people not to smoke and drink and um, not to be overweight and then, hooray, they live to 95, there's nowhere for them to go, yes. you know, because the services aren't available. So I think there's lots of anomalies in life <laughs> like that, aren't there? So you used to have a political interview show. A political interview show, yeah. Well, I'd hardly dignify it with that title. Why not? But, well, because it was on um, uh, BBC London and it was just basically <laughs> me playing records with swear words in them and then No, but you were talking to politicians and it was a lot did, more interesting yeah. than your straightforward political interview. Yes, I'd hope so. Yeah. Well, who would you like to <coughs> if you could do it again now? I think you ought to do it again now. Do you? Yeah. Who would I like to interview? Well, I would quite like to do Jacob Rees Mogg. <laughs> Because that's like sort of interviewing a Dickensian novel, I would have thought. <laughs> um, so him and um, oh, who up? Nigel Farage, possibly. Mm -hmm. you know, but I can't believe he's quite as vile as he is, and I would look for something positive about him. Well, that is a very nice. Yeah. Thought. Well, good luck with that one, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. he may. I'm sure he is very charming in the pub. Possibly. Yes. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly. 
So what, what is the advice that you give to your daughters? Um, I don't think I really give them um, any kind of straightforward advice. I mean, what, the, the thing that I'm most concerned about with, um, with having daughters, I suppose, of a certain age is personal safety. Mm -hmm. So I do, um, I do give them advice about that, but I hate to kind of hear myself saying it because I think it's just so horrible that you have to, that you have to even acknowledge that these risks are out there. I mean, um, I'll give you an example. A, a few years ago this was, but a friend of my daughter's um, was walking home and there was a guy um, with a van at the side of the road and as she walked past, he said, uh, I've got a bit of carpet stuck uh, in my van between the driver's seat and, and the, the, you know, the, the back of the van and I'm too big to get in there and pull it out. Would you mind crawling in there and getting it out for me? And I just... And thankfully, this kid was kind of on the ball, and she just said no, no. and ran away. But, you know, that guy's going to score a hit one day, isn't he? And someone yes. is a sweet little kid is going to agree to do it. So having to tell your daughters, for example, if a van pulls up, don't get anywhere near it, stand back or run away, all those sorts of things. Um, and just kind of admitting to them that there's all these potentially scary things going on in the world. It's what about awful. all the scary things that go on online? Well, <laughs> that's kind of a different thing for me, really, because I think that as kind of the older generation, which we sort of are, yeah, yeah. we kind of have to accept that we do not know our way around online stuff nearly as well as, for example, my daughters do. So us trying to put restrictions on, on them and kind of safety measures is kind of laughable in a way <laughs> because straight away they can get round them, you know. And so it's kind of more important to me that um, I think the two answers are talk to them about it and, um, <clears throat> you know, be relaxed about it. And I think one other way to really kind of get round some of the horrors of online is... Um, you know, if they come across some hardcore porn, just to all sit down and watch it together. <laughs> right. What so that would be the last tango in Paris <laughs> multiplied by a lot. While smoking <laughs> and injecting heroin. <laughs> and then they can see. Well, OK, is that, that's certainly... Um... Everyone alive! <laughs> So tell us about being on Extra Slice. So what kind of puddings do people appear with when they've... Um... Well, the thing about Extra Slice is everyone, everyone that sits at the front has brought a cake along that they're trying to get on telly. So the fact of the matter is, in reality, it's more important that the cakes look good. Oh, I thought the whole point was that they look not very good because they were a bit no, of a they failure. No, they kind of look weird. So people would bring cakes along that are like my head or, um, you know, that are kind of something really unusual, like a scale model of Paddington Station or something, you know. And they bring yeah. them along because visually they, they look interesting. So they get on the telly. But a lot of the time they sort of forget to make them taste nice. <laughs> so a lot of the time we have to kind of spit things out a bit. <laughs> what was it like leaving the BBC? Well, I haven't left the BBC because I still do Have I Got News. I mean, I, I don't feel... Um, 
I say it on Mum's Net <laughs> recently. Do you, do you look at Mum's Net? You should. It's hilarious. <laughs> I absolutely love Mum's Net. You've basically got a lot of women who are all very angry, which I am. I'm very angry quite a lot of the time. And they've all got fake names, uh, which to some extent point to their anger. For example, there's one post on Mum's Net called Eat Shit, Derek. And, you know, <laughs> like, well, that's quite specific, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> We all want to know who Derek is and what's happened. So, you know, so you go on there and they're just discussing whatever the latest kind of drama is in the life of women with children uh, on the whole. And um, they were actually um, uh, discussing, I think it was discussing my book the other night and, and one of them um, said, uh, oh, you know, it was, they were talking about money and they said, oh, you know, Joe Brands has got a really lucrative... Uh, contract with the BBC so she doesn't have to worry about money well I haven't I've mm. never been paid any money uh, by the BBC as a retainer uh, so my daughter went online pretending to be someone else and told everyone <laughs> 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 I'm so pleased about whether they believed it I don't know so before we open it up just what was it like doing that extraordinary walk oh what the one across uh, I mean, yeah, that was a heck of a long bloody way. It was 137 miles. In how many days? Seven. That's a lot of and, walking. Uh, yeah, it was it was horrendous. Did you it, do it in those? <laughs> did you do it in those boots? No. What kind of no? Okay, what kind of shoes? Oh, I got given some special walking boots to do them in. Were they good boots? Oh, they were great. They didn't smell very nice after seven days, but you know. Did they only um, give you one pair? No, they gave me a couple, but actually I only, I only used one. I have to say, I used a Fitbit, which was very useful, because that, um, that meant that once I'd finished the walk, I could limit my steps to 100 a day, because I was quite tired. <laughs> what, what, for a few months? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then um, the other thing which attracted me to the walk was they said to me, you'll be walking for about 14 hours a day, and you'll burn 6,000 calories a day. Mm. That, I'd be attracted by that. Well, unfortunately, I ate 9,000. <laughs> so I put on weight while I was doing it. <laughs> did you? I did, actually. Did, yeah, you meet, about... did people give you food as you were walking people along? People gave me food, yeah. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, awful. <laughs> were you just staggering at the end of every day? Yeah, pretty much. And when I got back to wherever we were staying, first of all, I had to have a cold bath. Uh, which is what for your feet and things? Uh, for ev well, for everything, right. for my legs, for, for everything. And then um, after I had the cold bath, um, this um, ex uh, army guy hit me for half an hour. I think it's called Hang on physio. A yeah, physio. Okay, physio. right, right. And um, <laughs> then I was able to have a hot bath. But the thing is, because he'd given me a massage as well, I was all oily. So I'd get in the bath, have a bath. Can't get out. bloody get out. <laughs> because I was so slippery. So the no, what, well, you had to sit there and let the water drain out. Let the water could, drain yeah. out. And then go, you get really cold. Help, help, like that. But, but I still couldn't get out with the water, because the sides of the bath really slippery. So <laughs> in the end, I managed to reach the bath mat and put that in the bath. It was like the Krypton factor. <laughs> it was so exciting. Challenge, yes. It was a challenge. Were you absolutely knackered by the end? I was, but I have to say, I absolutely loved it, really. I mean, it was hard work, it was knackering, but what I liked about it was the fact that it wasn't in Surrey. And, you know, the, yeah. the, the BBC <laughs> do do a lot of stuff down south, and yep. actually it was from Hull to Liverpool, 
and we just went through a lot of kind of really forgotten poor areas and you, you know what was just so lovely about it was the number of people that just came out and said hello and were just completely out of control pretty much i mean we went we went through this huge estate about seven o'clock at night quite a lot of people were drunk <laughs> and this woman came up to me and, and she went to put her arm around me but she was quite pissed and she sort of went like that and just hit me around the face really <laughs> so you know I had quite a few of those but it was just a really fantastic experience do you know how much money you raised I think it was like about 1.1 1.2 million yeah. bloody brilliant yeah bloody brilliant so yeah it was, well it was done. weird on that very nice note um can we get the lights up? And there are a couple of mics, so do come in and... But also don't feel you've got to ask something. <laughs> I like, it's nice to see men here, under sufferance, maybe hi, Keith. Yeah. <laughs> All going, oh, she's bloody dragged me along. She's not having another treat this year. <laughs> OK, anybody? <laughs> Great, no one. Let's go and get a beer. <laughs> Lady here. Hi, I'm just really curious to know what you were like at primary school age and whether or not comedy was used, I suppose, as a defense or a coping mechanism from a very early age or as a teenager or it came later. Yeah, at, at primary school age, I think I was already beginning to suspect there was a bit of unfairness going on in the world. I mean, it was quite unreconstructed at my primary school. It was like a little village primary school. And the headmaster was kind of just extremely violent. And, for example, when he, when he told someone off, he didn't kind of he just clip them around the head. He, he used to do this really awful thing where he would make... Uh, mainly boys, I have to say, go and get, do you remember shoe bags and you'd have your plimsolls in them and they'd have a drawstring and they were made by your mum if she was that way inclined. Well, he'd make them go and get that and then he would like swing it round his head like that and they'd just whack them really hard in the back of the head and that was, that would be like eight-year-old boys who was doing that too and it was very strange because he and his wife were really good friends with my parents and so it was kind of the ultimate dilemma that I kind of tried to tell my mum what he was really like. And it was just very difficult because they sort of, they, they didn't want to acknowledge it really, I suppose. So, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of quite, I suppose it was, it was idyllic in some ways because it was such a lovely like village setting on a village green, the church at one end and all the rest of it. But there, there was like a, a fair bit of horror going on as well, I suppose. But going on with that question, when did you, first start using humour as a defence or as a way well, to cope with things? I suppose I used it very early on. I mean, I, I was the middle um, girl of two brothers who used to kind of tease me relentlessly, really, and fight me at every opportunity. And um, I, I remember once I was, I was sat on a, on a five-bar gate and for a laugh they pushed it, at both my brothers, and I fell backwards and I ripped my arm open on barbed wire and so like there was lots of unpleasant stuff coming out of my arm I've got no idea what it was to this day and uh, they just laughed and walked off and I was kind of left in the middle of nowhere with this arm hanging out and I had to kind of walk home so that, that it was hard as fuck in the country 
Oh, it was. I just put a plaster over it and carried on. I didn't really. But did you think it was funny eventually, that? Or, I mean, did you have to laugh about it with your brothers to not seem to be seen to be wet? Yeah, absolutely. No, I did have to laugh. And actually, my brothers were very funny, so, you know... I didn't have to work very hard to laugh, apart from that incident, obviously. <laughs> yeah, no, that doesn't sound great. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Over there, lady in the... Would I ever consider going into politics? Don't... Stop it! <laughs> One person, thank God. Well, I have to say, I have, I have actually been invited in the past to stand as a Labour Party candidate in a general election and I, I turned the very kind offer down because I just think politicians are so controlled by outside forces these days that apart from very few that I meet, you, you, you can't say what you want, you can't be what you want and that's why people hate politicians because they're constantly working to a script, they all sound the same on question time. And I think it's a blooming shame. But you don't think you could get in there and change it? Not at my age, no. Yeah. I'm, I'm at the... I'm 61 now, and um, I'm about to start smoking and drinking again. Because <laughs> I kind of figure it's late enough. And, <laughs> and I, no, I just want to be a vile old lady. That's what I'm looking forward to. Are you a member of the Labour Party? I am. What's yeah. your view of what's going on now? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that kind of... I have to say, um, I think it's a total mess. And, um, you know, I, um, I admire a lot of Jeremy Corbyn's ideas, uh, but I, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of aspects of, of, you know, this resurgence of the kind of very left-wing Labour that I don't admire. I think they, you know... Um, at times they handle things very badly. I think there's some characters in the background who are kind of a bit, you know, unsavoury. And I just, I kind of feel, why can't they just all have a chat with each other and go, look, for the sake of unity, I know we all hate each other, but in public, can we pretend we don't and just present a united front? Because, you know, they have such an opportunity now. I know. Um, you know, to, to get somewhere. And they're totally wasting it, and it makes me really angry. Were your parents political? Did they, were they part...? They were. They were both... Um, they, well, they met each other at the Young Socialists, so, yes. And did they canvass and campaign when elections came round? No, they were a bit lazy. But I they got to they the did, polling really. booth. Pardon? They got to the polling oh, booth. Oh, they voted, yeah, very much so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Two questions there. We take. It doesn't matter which one. Whoever gets the mic first. So the woman in front with the scarf on. There's someone behind you. Put their hand up at the same time. So. Well, the lady behind's got it. Um, yeah. I was just wondering okay. if you could tell us a bit about your transition from being a psychiatric nurse to being a comedian and how that came about. Uh, well, my transition from being a nurse to a comedian sort of took place over two years and. Um, it started because a friend of mine just said, you stop bleating on about wanting to be a comedian and actually just go and do a gig and see how it goes. <clears throat> and that's exactly what I did. Um, it all went horribly wrong. I was extremely drunk, so I didn't know how Where was it, it went. Huh? Where were you? 
Well, I was at a nightclub in, in um, Soho. It was a benefit, a sort of uh, Greenpeace be okay. benefit. So every, all the other comics on the bill had all died a terrible death, and I went on drunk at midnight thinking I was going to storm it, and I just got... Well, I got this guy at the back just started chanting, fuck off, you fat cow, over and over again. <laughs> so eventually I did fuck off. And, um, but the thing was, the next day, I'd, I'd been so drunk the night before, I kind of remembered it in a much better light. <laughs> and all that went quite well. And um, so I, I carried on. And it was, when I actually did a proper comedy club, I noticed the difference between doing a benefit in a nightclub where everyone's drunk and doing a proper comedy club set up. Was that the first time you got paid for being a comedian? Uh, it was, yeah. Absolutely. Was that quite a watershed moment that actually oh, it was this amazing. is real? Uh, absolutely. And I, it, I, I kind of went on and on sort of working and then eventually I got offered um, a show called Friday Night Live, yeah. which was... Um, which was uh, actually live and quite scary but I was still a nurse at the time so I resigned from my job because I thought I can't really be on telly and then and then the next day you know mm. yeah be trying <laughs> to look after someone that's very upset so yeah so I left and so I gave myself six months um, to see if I could support myself you know just doing comedy and thankfully I, I could. How old were you when that was? When 29. You so you were a nurse for about, what, seven years, six, seven years? Uh, altogether, ten years. Okay. Yeah. Lady with the scarf. Hello. Yeah. Um, hello. Joe. you spoke about um, how a teenager shouldn't be like you, and yet you're uh, strong and outspoken and influential feminist and successful. Don't you think that more teenagers should be exactly how you were? Oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> well, yes, I, I kind of mean not like me in the sense of the sort of risks that I took, really, when I was a teenager. I would absolutely love it if every teenager in Britain was like me, because then I would kind of know how to talk to them. And, um, yeah, so uh, I think the kind of advice bit and the kind of don't do that and don't do that is really only thinking about Your people's daughters. safety. <laughs> Thinking about what? Your daughters, I said. Well, no, I'd like everyone's daughters yeah. to be safe. I'm not... Oh, real, no. I don't, not just mine. But the risk-taking and naughtiness and disobedience is... Yeah, the naughtiness. I'm not bothered about kids being naughty. What, what I really want um, teenagers to be is... I, I want them to be kind of empathetic towards other people and kind, really. Because I think, actually, a lot of teenagers are really unkind. And I think that's maybe a phase that they, that they go through. Uh, but that was always the most important thing with me, really. Thank you. <laughs> In the front. Hello, Keith. This is Keith. He, he directed the film that I wrote called The More You Ignore Me. And um, <laughs> we're quite happy with it, weren't we, we Keith, were. in many ways? <laughs> <laughs> so, Joe, I, I think I know the answer to this, but um, which do you prefer, performing or writing? And if you had to give one of them up and just concentrate on the other, which one would you do? You know, you know which one. Don't yeah, you? I do, but I want you to say. I don't. Uh, performing, <laughs> I like best. Yeah. yeah, by far. I mean, I, I quite I liked writing just after the kids were born. 
because I didn't get out of my dressing gown for about a year. And so, you know, it's so nice not to have to go out and just walk around with food all over you. And that's, that's when it's a good time to write, I think. Um, but, but I think when you're writing, you're writing in this weird atmosphere and you can't really tell what anyone else is going to think. Whereas if you perform in front of an audience, you know, you immediately have some sense of whether people are kind of with you or not with you quite a lot of the time. I mean, I do like a lot of corporate events and um, because, I, because I like to annoy businessmen, really. Uh, and the money's quite good too. But um, <clears throat> a lot of the time, you know, I, I walk on stage and it's a surprise and there's a sort of audible sigh of despair from <laughs> the audience. <laughs> And, and some, or some of those audiences, be they builders or people that sell sanitary products, are, you know, they, they are quite horrible to you, but that's actually a real challenge for a comic. Can you bring see. them round? Yeah, I think, I think you can if you work really hard, you know. I mean, I, <clears throat> I, mean, I was, for example, in Southampton a few uh, years ago, and there were like 900 uh, builders in the room. <gasps> Yum. And... Um, <laughs> And I came on and I could just like, again, there was like this, oh my God, it's that fat man or Channel 4, you know, it's all that. And I, and I just said to them, you know, you, you're looking at me and you think I'm just a portly post-menopausal woman that knows nothing about building, but actually you're wrong, because I know a lot about building, because my dad's a structural engineer, um, my brother's a quantity surveyor, and my husband's a fucking plank. So... Um, <laughs> and that kind of brought them round, you know, because... The thing is to actually just try and make people laugh. And once they laugh and they then go, you've got oh, here's, here's someone that's funny, then you've kind of got them, really. You've got to keep it up, obviously. But is there anything off limits? I don't think anything's off limits at all. What is off limits is a bad attitude towards certain things. So you can talk about racism, you can talk about anything you like, but if your attitude towards it is wrong, and that's much harder to decide, you know, whether someone's attitude is wrong, if it's a question of, of degree. But certainly I wouldn't shy away from any subject, no. And it doesn't, wouldn't upset your husband that he's a plank at this point? I checked that one out with him. Okay. <laughs> it's quite weird in bed in the morning going, do you mind if I call you a fucking plank tonight, dear? And uh, no, he was fine about that. 